What is up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of Living Off the Land. This is episode 220. I'm Dan, uh, your host, here with my co-host, Stephen, and we are back for another episode. Stephen, how we doing? I'm doing just fine, Dan. It's a Tuesday, a hot Tuesday night in the city. It's Tuesday night. You know yeah, what that means. That means we got some piping hot content coming your way tonight. Oh, yeah. So let's get right to it, starting with the beer of the week, and it looks like a very blue can it's actually, hmm. it's actually interesting it's very attractive it's, more of a, it's actually like a purple can mm-hmm. but yeah, it's uh, more purple now that i look at it anyway this is a cleveland classic and if you know cleveland beer you know this one this comes from uh fatheads brewery which is located in a couple different spots around cleveland they have the tap room in north olmstead and then they have the giant beer hall in middleburg heights uh, we've had beer, uh, lots of fatheads beers on the podcast before but uh, with it being uh very summery starting today we got a giant rainstorm on monday or no sunday sunday, sunday into monday. monday and uh after that mother nature was like okay you wanted rain you got it now here's the summer hmm. so we are 88 degrees today we are in the 90s tomorrow and Thursday, I believe, or pretty close to it. And then we're going to be in the 80s uh, for much of the weekend. It uh, was a bummer for the folks in Tremont. Uh, the Taste of Tremont uh, Festival was got, got Sunday, out. and it more or less got rained out. It was funny watch, uh, going past pretty much every park on Sunday. You had people getting – they were in the parks, but they were – all crammed in like sardines underneath every pavilion, basically. Hmm. Like, because everybody and their mother thought that, like, it was going to be good weather, and it was just not. Um, so, a lot of washouts on Sunday, unfortunately, for folks. But, uh, yeah, that's an aberration. Um, you know, but that's Ohio for you. You know, we get no rain for almost a month, and then we get like five inches of rain in two days. You know? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I just realized that. We went through all that, and I still haven't told you what the beer is. Uh, from Fatheads Brewery, <laughs> this is their Honey Blueberry Ale, and if you can't guess already, it is their Bumbleberry Honey Blueberry Ale, one of the most hey, popular honey. beers. Hey, honey. <laughs> one of the most popular beers in Cleveland. Um, usually, if you get it from Fatheads on the tap, they put some blueberries in there for you. I just have it out of a can because I went to Max Beverage and got myself a six-pack. And, uh, yeah, an absolute Cleveland classic. I will read the description. Uh, Brewed with fresh harvested spring honey stolen from some very angry bees. Quote, we have the welts to prove it. And infused with our own special painstakingly hand-picked blueberry essence. A light, refreshing ale with a nice blueberry aroma, crackery malt flavors, with a hint of sweetness, and a light, tart blueberry finish. Quote, it's the most refreshing beer in america first place brewing news global warming open global warming open what the hell is that anyway uh so bumbleberry it's got a 3.7 out of 5 rating on untapped 5.3 percent abv and uh yeah this was uh this was one of my first craft beer loves 
back when I pre IPAs for me. Uh, this was one of my favorites. Anytime I went to Fatheads, I got a, a bumbleberry um, with the blueberries in it. Um, I'll tell you what, I, a beer soaked blueberry, eating it when you're done with the uh, with the beer, very good. So uh, this this is very good. I love this. I love blueberry or bumble blueberry. Yeah, I do love blueberries, but bumbleberry. Uh, it is award winning, and uh, it is a light, refreshing ale brewed with. Honey and blueberries, according to the can. Hmm. Standard uh, Fatheads can. It's just got a bluish, purplish hue to it. And, uh, yeah, this is uh, very good. Very good. Um, Why would would, you rate this beer? I mean, I would actually say if you would get over your carbonation phobia, you might actually really enjoy this. Hmm. I will give this a 7.4. 7.4, okay. Very solid beer, very good score. Um, I enjoy it a lot. It's great in the summertime. One of the reasons why I got it tonight was the fact that it's 88 degrees outside. I had just gotten done cutting my grandmother's uh, yard, uh, mowing the grass. So I was looking for something refreshing to enjoy on the podcast tonight. So I uh, saw Bumble- Bumbleberry and was like, yeah, it was almost like a no-brainer. Yep, let's do it. Indeed. So we did it, and uh, eleven ninety nine at Max Beverage, uh, pretty standard for a six pack. Like I said, it's five point three percent ABV and thirteen IBUs, and yeah, go out and get yourself some uh, Bumbleberry and enjoy the summer and this uh, this summery weather. An eye catchy, distinctive dark purple can. You don't see a whole lot of that uh, on your store yeah. shelves. Very, very blueberry forward with this mm. and of course as we said before um fatheads brewery two locations uh one in north Olmsted, of course on lorraine road the other uh just off i-71 in middleburg heights uh it's a fabulous time if you ever get a chance to get out there so absolutely food is great at fatheads mm. so that is beer of the week so, we move on to Better Know a Neighborhood, and last week we went out into the suburbs to Strongsville, as it was the Strongsville Homecoming Festival and other stuff going on. And of mm-hmm. course, the Adidas National Showcase is this coming weekend. Thankfully, it was not this week because the uh, players would have been playing in five inches of rain, and it would have been just a total mud pit. Uh, but uh, Five inches of rain is a little bit of exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been the MB in me right there. shout out (laughs) anyway we go back inside the cleveland city limits tonight uh we head to the northeast side of town tonight we go to the neighborhood of st Clair superior all right this neighborhood is bounded on the north by lake erie on the west by east 55th street on the south by superior avenue and in the west by martin luther king boulevard so this basically you're going you're north of the neighborhoods of Huff and Central and to the west, or excuse me, to the east of the Asia Town area. This is an interesting neighborhood in that some consider this to be one of the hoods of Cleveland, but I don't think that's fair. I think this is this is a neighborhood that is majority African American, but it has historically been a very uh, multi ethnic neighborhood. It has a lot of um, Slovenian and Croatian. Uh, influence. In fact, the uh, Cleveland 
um, Slovenian society is right off of East 55th Street, which is right next to one of the spots I want to highlight in this neighborhood, which is the Goldhorn Brewery. Yes. It's the place that just I We've done it. just opened recently. It looks no, like a brand new building. It's been open for a few years. We actually did an episode there a couple years mm. ago. Sprawling Before tap, the pandemic. Sprawling tap room with outdoor seat. Man, they really do a good maintenance on that building because it looks shiny and new even. Uh, yeah, 4.6 I mean, it's not rated. too terribly old. The, the brewery's probably been open for about four years. And you just they got a great outdoor patio right on East 55th Street. It's, it's in an area of the city where you wouldn't expect a place like this, but uh, – I do just, agree with you a, there. Just a fabulous job that they've, they've done. And there's there's a new um, Korean barbecue place that's right down the street from there. And I, Ooh. for some reason, I cannot pull it up on my map for some reason. I remembered passing it when I was driving my lift car not long ago. Uh, don't show me the map. This uh, Is Anthony coming in here? Uh, <laughs> Inside joke. Inside okay, joke. Okay, no. Um, yeah, and this, and this is right down the street from uh, St. Vitus Church and St. Barton de Poor's High School. In fact, the Slovenian National Home, which is the technical name of the place I was trying to describe, was right uh, right down St. Clair Avenue as well in this area. But yeah, Goldhorn Brewery, that's uh, corner of East 55th and St. Clair Avenue, right in St. Clair Superior. Uh, definitely a place to check out. Yeah, uh, shout out to Chris, the, uh, the uh, brewery manager, uh, if you're still there. Uh, I haven't been to Goldhorn since before the pandemic, but we did do an episode there. I can't remember what episode number it is, but if you go back in our library, you can find it. <laughs> it had it had horrible audio quality, so mm. you might not want to listen to it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Telling people not to listen to it. Well, episodes. I just you know I, the the audio quality now compared to uh, two and a half years ago when we had very low quality mics trying to do a live uh, recording in an actual bar brewery uh it was not good mm. <laughs> so again this this neighborhood is very interesting in terms of its demographics and it's also very interesting in terms of its its geography and how things are you know we talk about main commercial corridors i mean there is kind of a main commercial corridor now as you go down st Clair avenue but historically speaking this is one of the few neighborhoods in the city where it's really a mix of residential and commercial. You mm-hmm. all have houses, and then you like have a business on the corner, or just randomly on a street, and then mm-hmm. it'll just continue with houses after that, until you get to the far north end uh, near the railroad tracks. That's where it becomes more industrial. And then on the other side of it is I ninety, and the East Fifty Fifth Marina is uh, right along Lake Erie at the very top of the neighborhood. East Fifty Fifth Marina is where you'll just see uh, boats upon boats. I mean, this is boating season. This is a time where people will go out on the lake uh, pretty much whenever the weather is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and East 55th Marina might be the biggest boat launch in Cuyahoga County in terms of the uh, – well, the Cleveland Yacht Club is actually right down the street from there. That's technically in the Asiatown neighborhood, but uh, that's less than a half mile from East 55th Marina, which is a Cleveland Metro Parks property. Cleveland Metro Parks does everything well. Uh, this place mm-hmm. is no exception to that. Uh in this little industrial area, uh, Dominion East Ohio has their main Cleveland operation there. That's a major employer uh, w- within this neighborhood. Uh, Horizon Science Academy actually has one of their locations right off of I-90 in this area. And then also right off of I-90 is the Immersive Van Gogh Cleveland exhibit, uh, which is on East 72nd Street right as you get across the railroad tracks. It's in a former warehouse, and if you've not been there, it's – well, I was actually a little bit underwhelmed by it, but that's only because I've been to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and I've actually seen Van Gogh's 
very greatest work, mm-hmm. uh, which is not to say that the stuff that in the Van Gogh Cleveland exhibit isn't great. It is. Starry Night? Yes. Yeah. So uh, if, if you've not seen it, if you are in any way enthused by uh, popular and uh, classic artwork, you're going to want to check that place out. Um, as we get back onto the, the main commercial drag on St. Clair Avenue, I want to point out a few other places. One is Cafella Coffee House. And this place is 4.8 star rated. It is at 6710 St. Clair Avenue. And this, you know, it's, it's one of your, you know, top local businesses in the area. Uh, it's African-American owned. Uh, it is, uh, again, when you're 4.8 star rated, it's, I mean, I, I'm not a coffee drinker, but, I mean, this definitely seems like a really popular hangout spot. Uh, pretty much right dead center of this neighborhood, geographically speaking. Mm-hmm. And then just a little bit ways uh, down the ways from there is Caribbean Vibes Bar and Grill. So if you're in the mood for uh, some good fish, good shrimp, some good jerk chicken, uh, anything of that nature, uh, uh, good plant uh, sliced plantains, uh, any sort of uh, Jamaican, Dominican, uh, Cuban, uh, Puerto Rican cooking, you'll get that all there. Uh, 7114 St. Clair Avenue. Uh, Caribbean Vibes is 4.1 star rated on Google and is also a locally owned and uh, African-American owned business as well. So, um, again, that's more or less dead center of the neighborhood geographically as well. As you get to the far east end of the neighborhood, that's when you uh, connect with Rockefeller Park, uh, which runs along MLK. And this, again, as we've mentioned before, is one of your top green spaces in all of Cleveland. At the very top of that, between the East 55th, East 55th Marina and Rockefeller Park, is Gordon Park, which is another green space, which is literally right along the lake. And I-90 actually sort of bridges over top of it, which is kind of interesting um, in the way they designed it. So you actually have green space pretty much on both sides of uh, I-90 as it passes through there. But again, Rockefeller Park goes all the way down from Lake Erie all the way to University Circle. Hmm. And uh, we'll be covering uh, University Circle neighborhood in a few weeks' time. But uh, all the cultural gardens are there. Uh, You'll see all the various uh, national gardens for all the countries, mostly mostly in Europe. But there's some from Africa. There's some from the Middle East. There's some from Asia as well. Uh, Oddly enough, they're arranged alphabetically. So that means Albania is at the very first spot right next to I-90, which hmm. is actually quite interesting. Yeah. Albania leads the way. That's uh, that's cool. <coughs> Close to home for you. Indeed. So all in all, I mean, is St. Clair Superior the greatest neighborhood? No. Is it as bad as some people say? No, it definitely isn't. And I do think that this is an area that is, as we've seen with Goldhorn, as we've seen with Cafella, it is a place where some people are now locating their businesses. And as that continues, I think you're going to see a little bit more migration into this area, particularly as some neighborhoods uh, like University Circle, like even Asiatown now, uh, start to become a little bit too pricey for some folks. Hmm. Um, Glenville and Huff actually had the biggest home price increases of any neighborhood in Cleveland from 2020 to 2022, and St. Clair Superior was not far behind. And I, I think that, I mean, it's not all sunshine and lollipops here, but it's, it's getting better. So, lollipops, huh? Yeah. Interesting. But anyway, that is St. Clair Superior Neighborhood, and I'm going to wham it with the right hand. All right.
Don't actually hit the table. <laughs> oh, gosh. Anyway. All right. Cool. Yeah, that's another one. Put that in the books. Mm-hmm. All right. So let us move on. As we're recording this episode right now, the MLB All-Star Game is uh, in progress. I don't have an update. At Chavez Ravine in Los Angeles. Yep. Dodger Stadium. And let me get a quick update. Of course, if you're listening to this, the game is already Shuhei over. Otani uh, got a base hit on the very first pitch of the game. It is 2 nothing. Uh, to the NL right now. Oh, no kidding. See how they scored. The NL doesn't seem to win a lot of these games. This this might be one that they might be able to get. Uh, Mookie Betts drove in Ronald Acuna Jr. for the game's first run in the, in the bottom of the first, and then Paul Goldschmidt hit a home run to center field. 2-0 NL in the top of the second. Paul Goldschmidt feeling golden tonight. hey Apparently. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on that as we go through the episode. But again, I don't know how much that makes sense because if you are listening to this, the game is already over. But anyway, and alas. I sh- and I should point out with when I said that the AL usually wins these games, if you go back from 1950 to 1987, the NL was in a, almost a similar stretch of domination where they won 33 times out of 42. Wow. But starting in 1988, that totally reversed. The AL has been 26-6-1 since then. Interesting. I wonder why that is. There has to be a reason. I mean, I know part of it is because back in the 70s and the 80s, the Red Sox and the Yankees weren't good, and they've been mostly good in the 90s and the 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. that's a big part of it. I, I mean, there there were some other teams in the NL that were much better then than they are now, teams like the Reds and the Pirates, who pretty much have never been good in our lifetimes. Yeah. Uh, before we get to – I want to talk a little bit about Jose Ramirez uh, in the Home Run Derby and then talk about the Home Run Derby a little bit. But as we're talking about the All-Star game, what is your favorite MLB All-Star memory? I guess I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. Well, you know what? It's great that you asked that because— It might be mine. I have been lucky enough to have been to not one but two MLB All-Star games. Both the ones in Cleveland? In 1997 and 2019. (coughs) And I was with my dad for both of them. good for you. And—well, I mean, you asked. (laughs) Uh, But my favorite memory was from 1997— when it was a one-one game yep. in the seventh inning, yep, We're and there was the same exact. Uh, there was memory. one. There was a guy on base, and up to the plate stepped Sandy Alomar. Santos Alomar Jr. And then what happened? Oh yeah, gash, bing bong, and he hit it out. I believe that was in the was it the seventh of the it eighth. Was the seventh, seventh inning, yes. And the AL won the game three to one, and Sandy Almar Sandy was, was the, the MVP. MVP of the All Star game, and it was awesome. Sandy was my favorite. Uh, well, one of two, but I, I think I give slight edge to Sandy, my favorite Indian of those glorious '90s teams. What was your favorite Indian on the '90s teams? Yeah, probably Jim Tomey. Yeah, that's my second guy. Yeah. I was definitely one of Tomey's homies, mm-hmm. for sure. But I love Sandy Alomar. And I love the fact that he's still with the ball club all these years later. Yeah. Um, he was just a great guy. He's a great catcher. Great. Um, he was always clutch. Uh, I'll never forget uh, him hitting the home run against Boston in the 95 uh, ALDS to win the game. I believe that was game one. 
Yes, it was. That no, game... no, 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 no. Wait, no, that was oh. Tony Pena. Oh, right. Sandy hit the home run against the Yankees in... That was also 97, also the division series. Well, the 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 one I talked about was in 95. Did okay. I say 97? Well, no, you said 95 the first time. I'm thinking of a different moment. Yeah. No, but that was Tony Pena, the one I was talking yeah. about. I mistaken, mistakenly said Sandy. I the, that was the that was the second one that I was going with, the one you were talking about against the Yankees in the ALDS in 97, mm-hmm. where he hit the home run. I think it was game two, uh, <clears throat> which, uh, gave, which uh, won us the game that night. And then, obviously, we went to the World Series that year, so we went on to win that series. But uh, was that was that the series that we won Game Five in New York? I think it was because I was at Game Four of that series, and <coughs> the the Indians were losing two. They were losing the series two games to one, and they were losing in the eighth inning by yeah. a run. And they came back, rallied, and won that game, and then yeah. they won Game Five, game in, five. In, at Yankee Stadium to yeah. advance to the, the Bronx. Yes, yeah. yep. took out the Bronx Bombers. We've got uh, we've got some we've got some definite history with the Yankees, especially in the playoffs. I was actually so I quick anecdote. I was driving my lift car on Sunday, and uh, somehow I got two Tampa Bay Rays fans from Tampa in my car because they they flew up to Cleveland for a business conference. Oh, they actually came to go to the baseball game on Sunday, but it was rained out, so sucked for them. But oh, uh, against the Tigers. The Tigers. Oh, okay. Yes, and we were talking, and I was like saying, you know, back in the '90s, the Indians had such. <coughs> battles with the Yankees and everybody here hated the Yankees so much. Still hates now the I feel like there's more hatred for the Red Sox than there is for the Yankees. Because mm. we've had more battles with Boston in recent times than than New York. I would agree with you with twenty seventeen notwithstanding. I would agree with still. you with the younger generation. I think the older generation, a la from us to our parents' age, still it's the Yankees the hate is for the Yankees. True. One hundred percent. But yeah, I, I would agree with you that because um, for our parents, Boston well, because, never won anything. Right, exactly. Years. You know, Boston didn't win anything until 2004. Yeah, 2003, 2004. 2004. And so before that, you know, we played them a couple times in the 90s, like uh, uh, most famously 99. We lost to them in the ALDS. Hmm. Uh, we lost game five at home against the Red Sox. Uh, so we have had we have had series against them uh, back in before the turn of the century, but – yeah, I, I definitely agree that the Yankees is the hate. I would say, even for me, so like our age, like up to our parents, um, it's definitely the Yankees. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you also remember, we were in the same division as them back before, before before, they re, before they re. Yes, when the AL was just two divisions, that's true. <coughs> the, the, the Indians yeah, were yeah. in the East. Yeah, so, yeah, there's definitely a rivalry. But I, I would say there's definitely a rivalry with both. Uh, I mean – Everybody friggin' hit has a rivalry with the Yankees and the Red Sox just because that's who they are. Yeah. But uh but yeah, definitely I would say, you know, there are teams that could say, Oh, they just hate the Yankees because they're the Yankees. We hate the Yankees and the Red Sox because we had we've had numbers a number of battles with them in the playoffs over the years. And it's gone both ways. It's not it's not a situation where you say, Oh, well the Yankees have owned us in the playoffs, you know, over the last 25 years. No, that's not the case. We've beaten the Yankees and the Red Sox plenty of times in the playoffs. They've beaten us, too. That's what makes rivalries. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. No, that's an interesting little side note. Uh, man, I'll tell you what. Playoff baseball. Oh, I hope that this team goes on. 
because you know this team is going to be so much fun if they make a run and if they get into the playoffs because they will have no expectations whatsoever and they will play like they have no expectations. The Guardians, if, if the Guardians play like a typical Terry Francona team in the second half of the season and they find out, figure out a way either to win the division, which is very much up for grabs because everybody in the division stinks, including the Twins and us. Not stinks, but you, you get you get what I'm saying. By very mediocre, you'd have to say. Yeah, um, it's it, we we talked about it. Was it last week or two weeks ago that the Central Division in both leagues is by far the worst division? Bad, just not good. I mean, you're gonna you're you very well could have the winner of the division in the AL Central be sub ninety wins. I think I, that's probably I going to happen. That. Yeah. At this point, I I fully expect that. I mean, you look at the standings right now. Twins fifty and forty four are in the lead. Guardians two games behind forty six forty four. The White Sox, you're the White Sox. You're loving this. You know, you had all those injuries at the start yeah. of the season. They're forty six and forty six. They're five hundred. They're only three games out. Well, if you're the White Sox, I mean, you also have a buffoon of a manager that intentionally walks a guy after his pitcher throws strike one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Guy's old. He's he's obviously over the hill. I mean, the like man's certain senile. people, like certain people that we rag on in our group text every day, who I can't mention <laughs> oh. on this podcast. <laughs> you probably don't want to mention, <laughs> but yeah. So we do not. Uh, disclaimer: We do not pol- talk politics Bef- on this podcast. Before we fully move off of the baseball and the All Star, and this is point, going to be vi- this is going to be very hard for you come November because I know for a fact you're going to want to talk politics, and I feel bad for. Uh, taking that from you, you might you might be able to convince me the first week of no, the that first week of November episode to get into it a little bit, but it has to be unbiased because I know that every that every election cycle in November, you know you go you go nuts with it. I do, but this is this is going to be a cycle where like my team is losing by thirty going to the fourth <laughs> quarter. So it's like wh- what's there even going to be? This We're not going to say whose out? team that is. We're not going to say <laughs> whose team mine is because truthfully, I really don't have a team. But anyway, uh, enough about politics. Yeah. So getting back to the All Star game quick because you yeah. you um, talked about we talked about ninety seven. The, there was one goosebump inducing moment from two thousand nineteen All Star game, mm-hmm. and that was when. MLB, so they have this partnership with Stand Up to Cancer, and they did this thing where they brought all these people out, all these kids, all these adults who had been through cancer and beaten it, and right in the center of that whole group was Carlos Carrasco. Cookie. And that uh, this was when he was dealing with with this as well. And, oh, my goodness gracious, every single fan was on their feet, clapping, cheering, just – I mean, oh, my gosh. I Wow. Yeah, it was. Uh, that it, was it a was, moment. That was seeds. Absolutely, it was. It was. Uh, it was an emotional moment. You know, all these, all these. Uh, Carlos Carrasco, by the way. If, you know, if you if you don't remember or or you know don't really follow baseball, uh, the 2019 season uh, he missed basically the entire season because he was battling leukemia, um, and it was one of those moments where, you know, you talked about all the kids and uh, all the players from both leagues got up and they all they all held up signs saying who they were playing for mm-hmm. and every all the all the players obviously were saying you know playing for cookie and all that stuff and uh it was an incredibly emotional moment um 
Less yeah. emotional for me. I thought I thought the great moment for the 2019 All-Star game was Shane Beaver starting the game in his home ballpark. Yep. That um, was cool. We're seeing that tonight with Clayton Kershaw starting for the National League. Um, interestingly enough, Clayton Kershaw, nine-time All-Star, 14-year veteran in MLB. This, tonight is the first not time he's starting the All-Star game. That's pretty amazing. One of the greatest, one been. of the greatest pitchers of our generation. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. You could say, of this era, you know, twenty twenty ten and beyond, he's probably the best pitcher in baseball. If it hadn't been for the Dodgers failing so many times in the postseason when they had chances to win the World right. Series pre twenty twenty, you could make a case for him being one of the greatest pitchers ever. Yeah, and. They did Maybe end up doing it in twenty twenty. Yeah, uh, no, it it absolutely is. He's he's been well well known, well documented for his struggles in the postseason. But he he eradicated all that when he they won the World Series in twenty twenty. So, mm. um, but yeah, I thought that was an interesting little uh, little tidbit that I heard as uh, we were waiting to start recording. But uh, yeah, so the All Star Game is going on right now, and um, yeah, um, if I didn't say before, uh, I had the same favorite moment as you. Uh, with Sandy Elmar hitting Sandy that home Elmar. run in 97. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Just the, you know, I remember, I didn't go to that game, uh, but watching it on TV, just the absolute roar of that of that stadium when that happened was awesome. I mean, that was that was in the midst of, you know, Indians fever, be a believer in the Cleveland Indians. Um, yeah, that was right in the middle, of, smack dab in the middle of that 90s run. Um, gosh, what an amazing, uh, amazing time. You know, I remember going to the home run derby that year and Mark McGuire hitting the scoreboard. You remember that? The home run derby? Yeah, he hit the support beam. Yeah. Or, or, or actually, no, that, that was in a regular season game. Oh. And during the home run derby, he may have hit a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. That's right. You're right. We were, we, were playing, we were playing the Cardinals in interleague play. Yeah. He hit the scoreboard with a home run. It was a day that was about 100 degrees. I'd never been yep. like sweating more at a baseball game. <laughs> he comes up in the first inning and is just wax one. It nearly leaves the park. It would have left the park if it hadn't hit the support beam on the Yeah, just smacked it left. about halfway up. <laughs> Unbelievable. And then the Indians had the audacity to say that that home run was only 461. Yeah, okay. Uh, no. Yeah, yeah, my rectum. <laughs> yeah, 461. Add a, add about another, <laughs> add about another seventy five feet to that. I mean, Jim I mean, Tomey holds the record at five eleven, but yep. I mean, That's if that true. one was properly measured, they could have beaten it. I mean, I will say, Jim Tomey hit a bomb to dead center field and hit it out of the ballpark. <laughs> so I mean, so I mean, I mean, he didn't get. It's not like McGuire got cheated on that. I mean, Tomey, if you hit a bomb to dead center. And it goes out of the ballpark. It was park. over the MTD park. It was over where the it was over Heritage Park Heritage where all park, the things yeah. are. I mean, yeah, <laughs> out of the ballpark, out. <sighs> yeah. So, eh, boy, interesting man. You know, going back in our childhood, just baseball was just so much fun, so much fun, so much fun until it wasn't. Yeah. A lot of that had to do with the ownership change, ultimately, because after the Dolans came in, they were bad for about bad for a while, five yeah. years before they 
Well, no, actually, only about three years, and then 2005 they actually had a very good team. Oh, uh, 2005, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but 93 games. The thing that sucks about 2005 is they absolutely choked that division title away. They had a very poor final week of the season, and none, none other than uh, Ozzy Guillen you doing the the choke uh, hand motion to the uh, uh, then Jacobs Field. He yeah, was five, I think, was Jacobs. Field. He was absolutely public enemy number one after oh, he yeah. did that. It's so, you know, I just, man, who, you know, we talk about the Yankees and the Red Sox. That for me, really, I mean, yeah, is it? Does, is there an extra buzz when the Yankees or the Red Sox come into Cleveland in the yes. regular season? Yeah, but I mean, I want like an actual like like a hatred rivalry. And I think that for us is Inside easiest. Inside the division, is easiest. Yeah, with the White Sox. But I mean, like, it's not like the Tigers. They stink, and we own them. We've owned them ever since Terry Francona's become the manager of the ball club. Minnesota. It it's, it's hard, hard to hate Minnesota. Yeah, you know they're geographically further away. You know, there's not been many periods where they've been good and we've been good at the same time. Yeah. Usually when we're bad, there's when they're having their good but periods. But man, the White Sox, I don't know, something about, you know, Cleveland versus Chicago, their colors are black and white. They wear pinstripes. It's just something about the White Sox just mm. ugh. And again, they're another team where when we're usually good, they're usually bad. Like, take last year. The Guardians weren't good. The White Sox won the division this year. A lot of it is because of injuries. But, you know, we're in the thick of it. The White Sox kind of stink. Um, you know, and before last year, the White Sox weren't very good for the, for the you know, three- to five-year run where the Indians will yeah. – the, the Indians slash Guardians will famously tell us, oh, we have the best or second-best record in the American League over a stretch of time. Yeah, go, go 1994 away. and 2005 were really the only seasons I can remember where it was like the Indians battling with the White Sox for the division. That, that and when uh, when Albert Bell left in free agency and signed with the White Sox after 96. Well, that was that was a D-bag move. Yeah, but it's Flat just out. The, oh, it's that just didn't end up that, that didn't end up working Sox. out for the White Sox. Though, no, it so. didn't. No, it didn't. Yeah, uh, Albert Bell was always best when he's with the with the Indians. Speaking of which, has there been a bigger fluke World Series champion than the White Sox in 05? Uh, they were not even good the year before that. They came out of nowhere and won like 98 games, and, uh, and then they just disappeared the next season. All I can remember about that was uh, in. Uh, <laughs> I'd never even heard of Scott Pasednik the year before that, and then only, he was like an MVP the only that thing, year. The only thing I can remember of that, and if any of and if any of my uh, my BG brethren are listening to this podcast, I can't even remember the kid's name. But there was a kid from Chicago that lived on our floor, Harshman Bromfield, third floor Bromfield, that was an enormous White Sox fan, and the night that they won the World Series, he was just running up and down the hallways just screaming, and everybody wanted to beat the living piss out of him. <laughs> I can't even remember his name. Man, was it Tyler? I don't know. Yeah. That's appropriate because the White Sox are the forgotten franchise in Chicago. Well, I mean, yeah. It's hilarious, too, because the the team that makes them the, the forgotten franchise historically Has been is terrible. terrible. Except yeah. for the one year they played us in the World Series, of course. I mean, they're, they're, when you think of teams that are least loved in their own city, the White Sox are probably only second to the L.A. Clippers in basketball. And Boy, the, that would be and, a great 
and the LA Chargers in football. That would be a great yeah. Yeah, you're probably that would be a great thing to try and go through. Wow. The least loved franchises in their own city. <laughs> yeah. Well, because you have a lot of teams that have historically been bad like the Cubs, but they're the quote unquote lovable losers. Like like play, like you can throw the Lions in that mix too. Mm-hmm. You know, the Lions are horrible. They're probably even historically worse franchise than the Browns. Well, historically, Ooh. historically, of course they are. But I'm talking about the last like 25 years, worse than the Browns. Yeah, people still love them. I mean, the Lions, who I you know decided to contract in our NFL 24 game, and I I still felt dirty doing it because of the way the franchise Man, is. I'm trying viewed. to think. You're, I mean, you're right on. You're right on with the Clippers and the, uh, the, uh, the uh, what was the, the Chargers? Chargers, yeah, Clippers and Chargers. Maybe that's an indictment of LA as a sports town, also. But, well, uh, I mean, if you're going to go by that <laughs> metric, I mean, you could throw the Atlanta Hawks in there. Um, yeah, they don't they don't do very well with fan support. Well, actually, a couple teams in Atlanta. Well, and even the, even a team that has three championships, the Miami Heat. I mean, they can't even sell out playoff games, and they have LeBron, Dwayne Wayne, and Chris Bosh. They're so jaded they can't even well, get up my, for a first-round series. Wow, well, everybody's, everybody's uh, too busy uh, doing blow and getting plastic surgery down there. You know? Plastic surgery is a very big industry in Miami. I'm not yeah, so is blow. Talking about all, cocaine. All, all the Colombians. Yeah. Uh, all the Pablo Escobar wannabes. Mm. Anyway, holy crap, we got off track. Wow. But that was good, though. I, I enjoyed that. Uh Let's move on to the basketball team here. And real quick, I, I wanted to, to touch on this because for whatever reason, I don't know why, but the Cleveland Cavaliers seem to change their jerseys like like every three years. It annoys the hell out of me. Well, I'll tell you what. Dan Gilbert and the marketing team over at uh, Cleveland Clinic Courts or down at the Romo Fijo or whatever, do not change your uniforms for the next like 25 years because in my opinion – I think they damn near knocked it out of the ballpark with this uh, redesign. Mm. What do you think? Uh, we, we we texted about it in our group chat uh, a little bit the other day. But uh, what are your thoughts on the new jerseys that came out? I think the jerseys are <coughs> effectively they, – they've gone back a little bit toward what we had in the 80s with the two-tone colors and the font and then also with, with, the, uh, with the, uh, the V with the net. At the same time, which is a callback, using, that, that's a purposeful callback. Using the colors from the sev- the sixties and se- well, not the sixties, they didn't start till nineteen seventy. From the seventies, and I think it works. I think mm-hmm. it works great. And also the uh, the line through the lettering, which is a nineties callback. Like if you look at the calves, there's a line through it. Yes, that is lettering. Correct. That's a nineties callback. Which actually the. It's funny because the jerseys in the 90s with the swoosh were actually not very popular at the time, but it seems like they're more popular today now. Uh, the, the fact that the Cavaliers have worn them in games in recent years. I'll tell you, I'll tell you uh, right now, that is my absolute favorite one. The black. This is a callback, and, and again, I don't know why I'm doing this because you, can't, you guys that are listening can't see this, but uh, if you go on the, the Cavs' Instagram, uh, and I, I'm sure you guys have all seen this by now, but... If you go on the Cavs Instagram uh, page, uh, they show the new uniforms, and there is what's interesting is they've totally taken out the navy blue, which is interesting. Uh, the color scheme literally now is wine, gold, and black. And I know you have your feelings on black, but I'll say this: which I'm, um, yeah, you know, 
I get it in this case because that was the color they won the championship. Well, in. that's where I was going. This so, the black uniform with the giant C logo and the number to the side. This is a direct callback to the 2016 NBA championship jersey, but it's without those dumbass sleeves that they wore in 2016. Because mm. the NBA finally dropped that because almost every NBA player told the league that they effing hated it. Yeah. It screws with your shooting motion. Well, especially because, like, especially I mean, because, like, we're not we're not talking about like rec league jerseys that are t shirts that are baggy and you have free range motion even though you wear sleeves. All These right. jerseys that they wore in the 2016 and the couple years previous to that, yep. they're like skin tight. Right. Like, imagine trying to when when all of your life you've played in tank top type jerseys, and you try and shoot a basketball with like you know, extremely tight materials around your shoulders. I know for, like, LeBron, especially in those finals, before the games, he ripped those sleeves, like, in the armpit. Yeah. So that so he, he could would get have full range, range of motion. motion. Yeah. yeah. Smart. Yeah, well, he ended up getting fined for it, but <laughs> he makes enough money. That he, he didn't matter. care. He wanted the championship. Exactly. Thank thank God, LeBron. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely think they knocked it out of the park. I will say that... I do give credence to the people that think that uh, these look like glorified practice jerseys, especially the wine one. It kind of does look like a practice jersey because there's no color on like the trim mm. or anything. But I got to say, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I don't think it's bad at no, all. Especially the I white. I, the white is clean. It's classic. And It's hard like, to have a good white jersey, but they, they did it on this one. Yeah. I, Man, I... I think they knocked it out of the park. Kudos to the Cavs uh, for this. And, you know, the ultimate test is how they look when the players are wearing them on the court. But I think we're going to be very When pleased. are they going to break out the gold alternate? I'm sure they've got that in, in the works. <laughs> that would be interesting because the gold is not uh, LeBron era 2.0 gold, which is similar to, like, the Lakers, like, gold yellow. Mm-hmm. It's a very – more like flat gold, like LeBron 1.0 era. Like a little bit darker of a gold color. Not yellow at all. More of a gold. Um, yeah. Boy, a gold a gold jersey would be interesting. I wonder if the Cavs would, would break out a gold-style uniform for their city edition uniforms. Yeah, I wonder. That would be interesting. But I will say, I think the Cavs absolutely knocked it out of the park. Let us know what you think. Um, I know there's a little bit mixed emotions just because there's some people that say that they look like glorified practice um, jerseys because there's there's no striping, there's no outline colors, there's no anything like that. Um, but I like it. For me, with uniforms, it's absolutely less is more. Mm. The current Cavs jerseys, I think, are are horrible. They so the Cavs have mostly had bad jerseys since the end of the LeBron 1.0 era, and yeah. I I am just gonna say this: when they changed away from their jerseys in LeBron, when they changed jerseys in 2010, yeah, it was hor- a horrendous change. Yeah, it was one that set it the seemed- franchise so far back. It seemed hastily made. Yes, it, it was hastily very concocted, and it seems you know like think? I wonder if there's truth to this. I wonder if that all got started 
as soon as LeBron bolted to Miami, where the Cavs were like, okay, we need to blank canvas. We need to start anew. But also they realized they didn't really have a lot of time because the NBA offseason is not is not very long, and they had to kind of get something done. Because I agree with you. I, I think that the jerseys, the, the Kyrie— The ketchup and mustard jerseys. Yeah, the Kyrie jerseys, and then— you know, those are the jerseys that the Cavs wore when LeBron came back up until 2018, where they had the current iteration. Um, we're terrible. There's no, there's no way around it. Yeah. Here's my theory. There's plain, and then there's plain and looking like that, which was awful. Here's my thing. So you have to approve a jersey change um, through the league at least a year before you do it. Okay. But I think so that, what happened was the Cavaliers had that change approved in 2009 uh, and and they were basically going with okay if lebron stays we're not going to go with this if lebron leaves we are going to go with it Hmm, i think that's what what they did and unfortunately that still gave them more time to come up with a much better design better color scheme than they did and they just completely blew it where do you come out on jersey redesigns as far as would you rather see whether it's good or bad would you rather see a team stick with it for a set amount of time or be like soccer teams either in the MLS or in Europe or wherever that whether they have a good jersey design or not they change it every year i am a believer in if you have a good jersey keep it yeah there's no reason to change it you know who has one of the best jerseys in college football? Penn State. Uh, yeah. It's simple. It's clean. It's only two colors, and they haven't changed it since, like, 1935. Yeah. You know who's another one who's who's one of the best? Notre Dame. Same thing. So, Notre Dame. Alabama. Notre also. Dame has had, has had never very change. minor tweaks because, uh, and it's mainly with their helmet. They used to have a flat gold color with their helmet, and recently they've gone back to the shiny metallic gold, which I actually like a lot. Mm. Um, but yeah, their uniforms. I mean, yeah, that Mich- is digging uh, into the minutia, <coughs> but yeah, Michigan, Michigan is like that. They haven't changed jerseys in forever. No, either. and yeah, and yeah, mm-hmm. and you find that a lot around college football, um, especially the classic looks. What's interesting is even Ohio State. It, it, they're subtle, but even Ohio State has changed over the years, and it's mo- it's mostly on the, the, sh- shoulder, the shoulder sleeve striping. changed um, around 2005, <clears throat> and then they put it back a few years ago. It needs but, to go back. They they wore yeah. the they wore the old school uniforms uh, on their uh, national title run in 2014, uh, the first year of the playoff. They went back to the bold gray stripes, which I think they should go back to permanently. But and if you look at baseball, and, I and, oh sorry, no, I just I wanted to get back to it. I hate the fact that soccer clubs change their jersey designs every single year. I hate it. Even if it's a bad kit, like I'm not particularly in love with AC Milan's kit, a home kit this year. Not particularly in love with it. I didn't like it last year either. But I hate that clubs change their kits every single year. I don't get it. Like, I don't – it's not – to me, it's not going to help. It's not – I mean, I don't know. I guess – it gets people to buy the jerseys every year, I guess. I don't know. The weird th- I mean, that's that's it. They just want more money on jersey sales. But honestly, I don't think the design causes people to buy less jerseys. 
Maybe I'm just off base with that, but I'm thinking if you're going to buy a jersey of your favorite team, you're probably going to buy a new jersey every couple of years anyway. I mean, I just don't think it's that big yeah. of a deal. But So if you're talking about soccer clubs, the thing I don't understand about soccer clubs, uh, particularly in Europe, it seems like their home kits never change. Most teams have an iconic home kit, and, and you know, for AC Milan, it's the red and black stripes. Yeah. Newcastle United, it's white and black stripes, so is Juventus. Yeah, but the away jerseys, it seems like barely any teams have dedicated away jerseys that don't change from year to year. Tottenham Hotspur is one of the only teams I know of that does, where they, where they wear the Navy. Yeah, I just yeah. I never understood that. Newcastle has worn literally every. In fact, Newcastle's Instagram page actually made fun of this uh, a few <laughs> weeks ago. They have they every color in the rainbow. June is was Pride Month, so they they literally they put mm. across a montage of their away jerseys, and they had every color of the rainbow from the last ten years. Hmm. Okay, that's just crazy to me. Yeah, uh, normally you see clubs do that with their third kit. Um, and like like Tottenham, for instance, you brought up Tottenham. They usually have a white kit, they have a blue kit, and then they have a random color kit. Mm. And you yes. see a lot of clubs do that. AC Milan's uh, kits this year is the red and black iconic stripes. Uh, then their their away kit is white with like some hor- uh, horizontal excuse me horizontal uh, very thin red stripes. And then they actually have like uh, like an olive green third kit. AC Milan is better than most because their away kit is almost always some form of white. It's always solid white with, like, sometimes they'll have stripes, sometimes, you know, whatever. Um, like Manchester City, their away kit this year is red and black. It's like, what? I saw that. Wow. I mean, they're trying to be like a club that historically wins the Champions League, which they do not, <laughs> like AC Milan. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Suck it, City. <laughs> um. Yeah. How many Champions League titles have you won? You know what's <coughs> excuse me. You know what's hilarious about that whole debate is uh you'll have like City and not so much Chelsea because they've now won the Champions League multiple times, but these clubs that like have either never won Champions League or have won the Champions League once, and most of them are EPL clubs that are like big now, uh say like, oh well, uh, all you got is the fact that you you brag about how many Champions League you win. Yeah. Excuse my language. No shit. <laughs> it's the biggest. It's the it's the biggest non national team trophy in the sport. The biggest trophy in the sport. Period. Other than the World. Cup. Other than the World Cup. Yeah. And people could people could you know also I guess say the Euro because if. If you win the Euro, uh, yes, okay, you're the Third. greatest country in Europe, which mm. which has the best amount of being best in the world, other than like Brazil, Uruguay, right. and Argentina. Right, right. <laughs> it's just like I just I just love I love the clubs that say like, oh, well, you brag about winning. Uh, uh, all you do is brag about winning the champion. That's like that's like an NFL team bragging about winning the Super Bowl. Yeah, like, like we're gonna talk like, about Pittsburgh hell? and like, oh yeah, you guys are so great. You talk about all the Super Bowls you win, and they'd be like, yeah. What on earth are we talking about here? You know, it's like that argument we got in with Mike where Mike's like, oh, uh, uh, Scudetto versus Champions League. Yeah, I'd rather win the Champions League than win the, than win the league uh, title. Was it? Did I love the fact that AC Milan won the Scudetto this year? Yes, because yes. we hadn't won it in 10 years. Mm-hmm. But now my objective changes. If we win the Scudetto again, great. But it's not, it's not, 
It's not the goal. I want AC Milan to win the, to win the Champions League again. Mm. You know? But anyway, that's a tangent. Getting into soccer talk. but I'll just conclude that by <laughs> saying, you know who I think has the best kit in Europe right now? Who's that? Juventus. Why? Because it's similar to Newcastle? It's similar to Newcastle, and also it has the tire track stripes, which I think are just amazing. And I think, given that their Whatever. sponsor is Jeep, I think that's brilliant. Oh well. Listen, I can't, I can't kill that because I, I've already said that I don't like my my own club's kit this year. But, um, oh well. Anyway, mm. we'll end on that. But anyway, uh, before we get out of here, uh, we need to touch on Deshaun Watson because by the time we get we get together again next week there's a chance that we might know the fate of the Browns franchise starting quarterback. So you're saying there's a chance. There's a chance. Um, all of the briefs have been turned in, and it's deliberation time for uh, Judge Sue Robinson and uh, what her recommendation is going to be. So Mike Florio came out with an article today saying that there are people in the know that have seen all the documents and are familiar with the cases that the NFL and the NFLPA have brought forward that they put a range of two to eight games as a suspension for Deshaun Watson. Why did he even put a range? I mean, two to eight? That's just... <laughs> I know. I, it's, it's either like, hey, he's, he's not going to get suspended or he's going to get suspended for half a season. Now, I will say this. I think on the podcast the last couple of weeks, I've given your brother credit. Your brother Matthew has been steadfast on this the entire time, and he said four to six games. I think he could be right. Yeah. I think it's going to be either four or six, to be honest with you. Now, we'll see what happens, but... Really hoping for their sake it's only four. Schedule gets really hard after the fourth week. So, I hope it's four. I think six is okay because that means he would come back on the Thursday night Halloween game against the Cincinnati Bengals, and you talk about potential highest-rated games for the entire NFL season... That might be one of them if his suspension is six games. That's a big one, no doubt about it. I Halloween mean, night, that's that's just so cool. Halloween night well in, in Cleveland on on Thursday Thursday night, Halloween, Cleveland. Uh, you you best you you best be damn sure I will be taking off Friday, November first. <laughs> Especially if Deshaun Watson's playing that game, it'll I gotta have, find my way. I gotta to find be, my way into that stadium for that game. It'll have to be a Tuesday. You take off because that's actually a Monday night game. Oh, my bad. My yes. bad. Okay, so, yeah, it'll be a Tuesday. I, I, I guess I just forgot when Halloween was. I knew it was on Halloween. Hmm. So. And actually, if he comes back, if he's suspended for six games, his first game back would actually be the October 23rd game at Baltimore. Okay, well, I'm the, just completely out of it. This, but, I, just, I, mean, I just don't know what the hell I'm it, talking about. But, hey, about. you talk about ratings, that would be a heck of a ratings game as Deshaun well. Deshaun Watson against Lamar Jackson. Yeah. And then Deshaun Watson against Joe Burrow. I don't know how much of the country would see that game, seeing as it's a 1 o'clock game, but you'd have to figure that CBS would feature that very prominently. I mean, assuming that Jacoby let, – let's say for the sake of this discussion, it's a six-game suspension. Yeah. If Jacoby Brissett can keep us afloat in those first six games, those two games that Deshaun Watson comes back for could very well decide the division. Yeah, you, when you think about it, those are two massive games. And, there, I mean, there's a lot of big games later, but, you know, a lot of them are out of division or even out of conference. You know, teams yeah. like Buffalo and Tampa and uh, New Orleans. I don't know if New Orleans will be any good, but, you know, that's another one. So, 
you know, yeah, those whenever you play two division games back to back, it's big. And yeah. particularly the second one's a Monday night game, by the way. I'm a huge fan of the fact that the they play on Monday night and then they get a bye afterward. They don't have a short week. That's yeah. that's nice. Yeah. So you can definitely uh assume that they're gonna put everything into that game. Uh, not only because of how big it is, but they know they're going on a a, a bye week break uh, following it. Right. Um. So yeah, two to eight games is what Florio kind of set up as a framework point. Um. Given the knowledge that he's gotten from people in the know with the proceedings that's that's going on, the NFLPA has has already thrown out a uh, a preventative strike against the NFL, saying. Whatever Judge Sue Robinson says, assuming it's less than a season, if you if you dare say because Roger Goodell has appeal power, so if the NFL decides to appeal whatever Sue Robinson recommends as a suspension, and the NFL says no, we want a year suspension, uh, it's a year. The NFLPA has already leaked it out to the media that says, don't you dare do that. If you do that, we're taking this to federal court and we're mm-hmm. suing your ass. And the reason why the NFL does not want that is there are skeletons in the NFL owners' closets that will come out if this goes to federal court. And I'm looking at you, Daniel Snyder, and I'm looking at you, Jerry Jones. Robert Kraft. This isn't even, well, this isn't even Robert Kraft anymore. Uh, Jerry Jones had the uh, whole voyeurism uh, scandal from this past year that, that just that just went away. And then there's all the nonsense that's going on with Daniel Snyder right now. And if you don't think the NFLPA is going to bring out some dark, dirty secrets about the NFL in, involving those cases, if this goes to a federal court, uh, the NFL does not want that to happen. No. So that is why I think whatever Sue Robinson recommends as a suspension, I don't think you're going to get – an appeal from the NFL. I think the NFL is going to be like, okay, this is the process that we set up in the uh, collect- new collective bargaining agreement. Roger Goodell wanted this off of his plate. He did not want to be uh, setting suspensions and discipline for personal conduct policy violations because it only created headaches for him. He almost lost his job over the Ray Rice thing. Yeah. Years ago, he when they sus- well could have lost when they suspended him for when they suspended him for two games, knowing that that video existed of him dropping his fiance in that elevator, and then the video leaked, and he almost lost his damn job because. Thank of it. you, TMZ. By the way, yeah. So, uh, I think whatever Sue Robinson hands down on the NFL side, they will be like, "Okay, we're wiping our hands of this." This is the process we agreed to. We're going to make it clear that we wanted a year. You know, they want to be all high and mighty and say like, oh, well, we wanted to suspend him a lot because he violated the the personal conduct policy, blah, 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 blah. And they're going to adhere to whatever Sue Robinson says. Um, that's why Mike Florio is saying it's not going to be more than eight games because that's what people in the know are saying. Uh so we'll see. I think your brother Matthew is right on the target with four to six. I could see it being four. I could see it being six. I think he's going to get suspended. Now, P- 
people are saying like, oh, how could he only get suspended four games when there was 24 civil lawsuits against him? That's not how this process works. The NFL only brought four cases in front of Sue Robinson as far as uh, this hearing goes. So anything other than that, Sue Robinson can only go by what is being brought to her as evidence. And the NFL brought five cases, and Sue Robinson immediately threw one out. So it's four cases that she is looking at. It's not 24, and people are saying, oh, the 66 women in a uh, 17-month span, that's not, you know, he doesn't have 66 cases against him. He has twenty. He has he had twenty four. He settled twenty. There's four left. So that's what she is working on. She's working on the evidence of four cases against him that the NFL is trying to prove that violated the NFL's personal conduct policy. So we shall see. I think you. I think your brother Matthew's right on right on the money. Four to six games. Like I said, I could see it being four. I could see it being six. I don't see it being two games because at that point, it's like, why did you even suspend him? And I don't see it being zero games. So I think four to six is right on the money. What do you think? So I have an angle that I have not pushed up to this point because I haven't wanted to touch it. But in recent weeks, just in the conversations I've had with various riders in the lift car, I feel like I got to bring this up. Every single time I talk about this topic with people who are into football, mm-hmm. their responses as to what punishment should be doled out is very, 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 very heavily determinant based on their race. Okay. It seems like if I'm with people that are of – Caucasian descent, it's pretty much exactly what you just said. You know, he's done wrong. He hasn't been charged criminally, but, you know, he's going to get, you know, somewhere between four and eight games is the general gist of it. Amongst those I've talked to in the African-American community, Mm -hmm. they feel like if he was white, he wouldn't be getting any punishment at all, and he shouldn't be getting suspended at all because he's not he hasn't been charged with anything this is in criminal court this is just a witch hunt and it's largely civil based court. on civil court. it's largely based on the Texans ownership and the NFL ownership that they are basically just trying to make an example out of him yeah so what's interesting is how convenient is it that uh that the Texans get brought into this lawsuit and they immediately settle with all 30 cases but they say oh we didn't do anything wrong right but when Deshaun Watson settles, it's an admission of guilt. Exactly. Um, that's it's it's, it's interesting. It, yeah, it, it is very interesting uh, how that's being portrayed. And of course, a lot of this is coming out of the Houston area, where obviously they don't want their organization being portrayed in a negative light because it's it's the whole team, it's the organization, and their their former franchise quarterback no longer plays with them. So they don't really care to defend him. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Um, and, of course, our uh, former uh, co-host on this podcast, Jordan Gonzalez, is a Houston Texans fan. Obviously, he's no longer uh, a Deshaun Watson fan, and I don't think that would have been the case whether he was still playing for the, the uh, 
Texans are not. Um, but uh, yeah, I also I also love the Houston the Houston fans. Uh, and I don't want to get too into this because Jordan he's a member of the Houston uh, sports community. Yep. So he and he's not here to defend himself, but I, I do think it's and it, this isn't him per se. It's just in general. I love the uh, the Houston perspective, just saying like, oh, we just he's he's gone. He's not our quarterback anymore. We don't want to talk about him anymore. But anytime this gets brought up in the news, anything that's slanderous against Deshaun Watson, they're liking on social media. They're retweeting. They're talking about. So it's like you can't have it both ways. If you don't want to talk about him, don't talk about him. You know. <laughs> so. Yep. Um. Yeah. And, and again, this isn't me uh, trying to defend. And I'm not defending Deshaun Watson just because he's uh, the new Browns quarterback. If he's if if he's guilty of the things that were he was accused of, there's no defending him. The issue is the evidence is not really pointing that way, and we're never going to know what actually happened. No. Ever. No. We will won't. never know. So I don't know. It's just I just I just want whatever the whatever the uh and, and whatever uh punishment is handed down, you can't say that the NFL went light on him because this isn't the NFL handing down this punishment. This is a former federal judge who's been named arbiter agreed upon by the NFL PA and, and the league. So if he gets four games and you're like, whoa, that seems like not a lot for how big and how long this has been drawn out, you can't blame the NFL. That's that's what is being handed down by an impartial arbiter. So yeah. I think it's just – I'm to the point now where I'm just, just – just tell me what it is and let's get over – let's let's get – you know, let's get through it and let's get over it. And let's get and the ball on the tee and let's let's get the season rolling. Exactly. But so. so to put a bow on this, I gave you the racial perspective. I'll give you the geographical perspective now. So within the last month or six, and in in the summer months, there are lots of people who are always flying into Cleveland, usually for business conferences and other various mm-hmm. events. And Cleveland's the place to just, be in the just summer. Just in man. the last two months, I've had people from Portland, San Francisco, L.A. New York, Minneapolis, Houston, Tampa, yeah. uh, Atlanta, Charlotte, from all over these uh, the, the country, really. And whenever the topic be, turns on to the, either the Browns or the Deshaun Watson situation, the general vibe I get from these people is, you know, the Browns really had a had a great season in 2020. It, it you know it looked like the organization really was finally getting it going, and then the Browns just became the Browns again, and now they've you know the it's almost like they just expect that this whole thing is just going to fail spectacularly and that we're just the Browns again. Well, I mean... So, from a national perspective, if the Browns have a really good season this year, and let's say we like go on to win the division, mm-hmm. my thinking based on what all these people are saying from these other parts of the country is that everybody in the national media and everybody in the national fan base of the NFL is going to be shocked. Yeah, nobody's expecting the Browns to do well outside of Cleveland this year. It seems. Well, when when did when the Deshaun Watson situation aside, when does anybody in the national media outside of Cleveland think that the Browns are going to be good ever? Not usually. Although I do remember we had a lot of people in our corner prior to the 2019 season and prior to last year too. Yeah. Um, 
And last in those two seasons, you know, 2019 was not good. 2021 was certainly more injury induced. So, if you're keeping, if you're paying attention to the scores, when the national, when over the last say handful of years, when the national media and the national perspective buys in on the Browns, they can't handle it. When they fly under the radar and or are not given much chance and are underdogs, that's when they succeed. Yes. So if that's if that's the thinking, the Browns are probably going to be pretty 2022 good. Twenty twenty two should be a good year. Yeah. I mean, two thousand eighteen, nobody expected anything out of the Browns. They went five hundred, and then two thousand twenty, they they weren't really heavily fancied after doing bad in twenty nineteen, and they yeah. had the best year that they've had since they came back. Yeah, and they were uh, they were a fourth quarter drive away from going to the AFC Championship game. I mean, they really are. It, it's it's you look around the league even. The Browns are one of the hardest teams to try to project a win total on. Yep. They really and I will take are. This to my, I will take this to my grave, and there's no way for me to prove this, but in 2020, if we would have won an Arrowhead, which it looked like we might have at one point in that game, we were going to the Super Bowl. We were going into Buffalo and beating Buffalo. This was before Josh Allen was as great as he is now. Yeah. Admittedly, Buffalo had a very good season that year. I'm not, it would have been, I'm not as sure as you are on that, but it, it very well could have happened. Tell me that the Browns would have, and again, we're going on another tangent, and the episode is going to be ended here in a few minutes, but i got to get this off my chest. Yep. 2020. Uh, tell me that this that if the Browns would have won that game in Arrowhead, that they would have not have felt like a team of destiny. First round, they go into Pittsburgh. After punching Pittsburgh's lights out in the first round. Then you go into uh, the defending Super Bowl champion, and you would have won that. Both on the road. Yep. And then you would have you would have had an opportunity to go to Buffalo. To me, if 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 we win in Pittsburgh and then win in the defending champions house, going to Buffalo is like a walk in the park. Not necessarily the game, I mean like the intimidation factor of playing in Buffalo. There wouldn't be any intimidation factor None. because the Bills were just a good for the first time and, in a long time. And they would have been playing with house money because like you said, nobody expected the Browns to to be to do anything that year. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying they would have won the Super Bowl against Tom Brady that year, but I they would have gone to the Super Bowl, in my opinion, no doubt. But we'll never know. So full disclosure, sign me up for a Cleveland Buffalo AFC championship this year. <laughs> I would love that. Either here or in Buffalo, and you bet your ass that I would find my way to both games. <laughs> Buffalo is a three hour drive. It's not that far. You know what? Hey, the last time we went to Bill Stadium, we saw rooting, one of our, on, rooting on a team that had we brown saw, and orange. We their saw colors. one of our teams win a championship. So we. Were <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, anyway, uh, that BG is the SU. That is the current update on the Deshaun Watson situation, and that's where we're going to leave it for this week's episode of Living Off the Land. Appreciate you guys listening. Uh, thanks for uh, uh, sticking by us. Uh, all these episodes, we really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, you can follow us on social media at the LOTL podcast. And, uh, yeah, so uh, this has been episode 220 of Living Off the Land. For Steve, I'm Dan. You've been listening to LOTL, and we'll see you guys next week. See ya. Bye.